1: I'm Margaret Brennan. This week on Face the Nation, coronavirus surges in the South and West with hospitalizations and deaths on the rise. Unemployment claims spike for the first time in nearly four months, and President Trump looks for a reset. As America's pastime faced its new reality, a July opening day, empty stadiums and a masked epidemiologist tossing the first pitch. President Trump faced his own reality, a pandemic out of his control.
2: It will probably, unfortunately, get worse
3: before it gets better.
1: He shifted messaging on multiple fronts, endorsing masks, reviving his COVID press briefings, and canceling the GOP convention in Florida. The president even backed off his push for all schools to reopen.
2: In cities or states that are Current hotspots, districts may need to delay reopening for a few
1: weeks. And as an eviction ban and extra jobless benefits expired, his administration failed to reach a deal with Senate Republicans, who still need to negotiate with House Democrats on the next COVID aid package.
4: The Republicans are derelict in their duty.
1: Our guests, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Plus, we remember a lion of the civil rights movement, the late Congressman John Lewis. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. and welcome to Face the Nation. 100 days from the election, the country faces a bleak outlook. Over the past five days, the coronavirus killed more than 1,000 Americans a day, the highest number since late May. Millions of Americans are also wondering how to make ends meet. Congress allowed a $600 boost to unemployment insurance and a federal ban on evictions to expire. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said it may take weeks to reach a deal, as Republicans have not yet presented an alternative to the $3 trillion rescue package that House Democrats already passed. We begin this morning with Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Speaker Pelosi, thank you for joining us.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: The Treasury Secretary said this morning that Republicans will introduce a bill on Monday. When do you expect to begin negotiating?
4: Well, we we've been anxious to negotiate for two months and ten days when we put forth our proposal uh, that does three things: honors our honors our heroes by st- supporting state and local government with the healthcare workers, food suppliers, teachers, 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 uh, transportation workers, sanitation workers, and the rest. Secondly, that opens up our economy by having testing, tracing, treatment. And uh, distancing to end this virus. And third, uh, to put money in the pockets of the American people, unemployment benefits, direct payments, etc uh, These are things that the Republicans have voted for oh, uh, in previous COVID packages. So it was nothing new. It was more mm-hmm. because more was needed. Uh, And then for them to come now, when we're right on the brink, when people are hungry in our country, children, millions of children are food insecure. Many families who never thought they'd go to a food bank are going to food banks, and we need more money for food stamps and emergency uh, nutrition programs, and they're resisting that. And again, that, that they would now be trying to that they're in disarray, and that delay is causing suffering for America's families. So we have been ready for two months and 10 days. I've been here all weekend, hoping they had something to give us. They promised it this week. It didn't come. Now right. they're saying Monday.
1: Will you stay in session until a deal is negotiated?
4: We can't go home without it. But it's so sad that people should have this uncertainty in their lives. At the same time, as they are bolstering the stock market, and that's not a bad thing, but trillions of dollars from the Fed, etc., to bolster the stock market, let's have a commensurate amount of money to bolster America's working families. Well, family.
1: specifically on what has just expired, that, that boost of $600 to federal unemployment, mm-hmm. uh, Republicans and the White House are saying that they want to keep some money going, but bring it down to about 70 percent of prior wages. Is that something you can accept?
4: Well, let let me just say this. The reason we had $600 was its simplicity. And figuring out 70% of somebody's wages, people don't all make a salary. Maybe they do. They make wages, and they sometimes have it uh, vary. So why don't we just keep it simple? Unemployment benefits and the, uh, the enhancement, which is so essential right now. And that's really where we are starting. So and a flat we, amount is what you're saying. It's so su- important to the American people. So 60 uh, you percent, know, over 60 percent of the American people support right. that.
1: No, I understand the difficulty for states to adjust their systems to process this, but would you accept a flat amount, something less than $600 as a boost? Is there a compromise well, let, let me here? just say,
4: I'm not going to have, an. with all due respect to you, Margaret, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, to share some uh, values that we have that apparently they don't share, uh, we'll have our negotiation, uh, but we—how uh, can these are the same people who gave a—the ta- only thing they have accomplished in the Trump administration on their own, the only thing they accomplished was a tax cut for the wealthiest people in America, the cost of two trillion dollars to the national debt in order to give 83 percent of the benefits. Right. to the top 1%. And they're resenting $600 for single moms to be able to put food on the table, for dads to maintain the dignity of of uh, uh, keeping their families intact and with unemployment insurance, with assistance for rent, right. with food. This is an emergency. They, maybe they don't understand. I don't know what they have against working families in America. Well, they would keep this going so long.
1: Well, I appreciate you not saying you don't want to negotiate in public, but for everyday Americans who, who are waiting on this <laughs> money, the amount matters. I know uh, the argument being that this is a cliff and that people were paid to stay home. Now they don't need to be paid to stay home. So I'm, I'm just wondering for you, because the last time we spoke on the heels of the HEROES Act being passed back in May, you said to me at that time, we <clears> have <throat> no red lines. Has that changed? Is this
4: a red line for you? That was in reference to what you said about the um, <clears throat> Um, liability, et cetera. But in fact, you don't go into a negotiation with a red line, but you do go in with your values. And if you're spending trillions of dollars to bolster the stock market, and I'm not complaining about that, that's important to our economy. So is this now. Mind you, we haven't even spoken about state and local. State and local government is supplies that meets the needs of the American people. Millions of people, uh, over a million people have already been fired from state and local government because of the cost of of coronavirus and the revenue lost from coronavirus. If these people get fired, they go on unemployment insurance. So what money are you saving by ignoring the needs not only of the American people, but of state and local government? That's a whole piece of all of this that is essential uh, to, again, right. not only meeting needs and meeting payrolls, but also growing our economy.
1: Some of the companies and even universities out there have said that they do need some kind of liability protections. Is, are you open to a deal that includes that?
4: Well, the, there are some suggestions that relate uh, to academic, uh, to schools and the rest. We have an initiative in California to that respect. But we, what we will not support is the following. But they're saying to essential workers, you have to go to work because you're essential. We place no responsibility on your employer to make that workplace safe. And if you get sick, you have no recourse because we've given your employer protection. And if you don't go to work because you're afraid of being sick and you have that job opportunity, you don't get unemployment insurance. This is so unfair. Let's just get to the heart of it. At the point of all of this is this president, I have a new name for him, Mr. Make Matters Worse. He has made matters worse from the start. Delay, denial, it's a hoax. It'll go away magically. It's a miracle and all the rest. And we're in this situation that you spelled out some of the numbers very clearly early.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So it Make Matters Worse, now they we we'll send our children to school. The best way to send our children to school is to fund it to fund it, the ventilation, the spacing, the additional teachers, and to lower the infection rate in the community in which they exist. That takes money. That's in the HEROES Act to do.
1: Um, Speaker, I do want to ask you about your former colleague, John Lewis. We know that the procession in Alabama will bring him across that Edmund Pettus Bridge for the last time today. You've crossed it with him, and I'm just wondering what this symbolizes to you.
4: Well, the very idea that John Lewis will be crossing uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge today on a full horse and carriage, taking him across with the state troopers, paying their respects to him, honoring him, so different from what happened before. Uh, Your show is called Face the Nation, and I have this pin. This pin I brought to John over Fourth of July weekend. That was the last time I saw him. Mm -hmm. I brought him this pin, and it says, one country, one destiny. That's a nation. And John's life was about that. One nation, one country, one destiny. More perfect union. Mm -hmm. And again, these words were embroidered into Lincoln's coat, the coat he had on that ill-fated night. And just think that tomorrow, John Lewis Will lie on the catapult that was where Lincoln was laid to rest when he came uh, to the capital of the United States, and was the, and John F. Kennedy and the rest. But Lincoln to Lincoln, Lincoln Memorial, 57 years ago. Now he's he's sharing that resting place with Abraham Lincoln. So well, it's a number of days more that we have. We look forward to welcoming him to the Capitol. But the, well, the most yeah. iconic thing is that his if we know when he made his speech in 57 years ago as a young, met the youngest person to speak there, mm-hmm. and now when he left Washington on his way out of town, he went to Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., I mean, met the mayor there, we and that. really passed the torch to see him there, to see him there uh, from one generation uh, into the future we were so blessed uh, he was a titan of the civil rights movement he was the conscience of the congress thank you we, we will miss him sadly
1: thank you very much speaker thank you we now thank turn you, we now turn to texas senator ted cruz senator thank you for joining us before we get to business your reflection on john lewis
5: well john lewis was an extraordinary hero he was a civil rights icon when when I was newly elected to the Senate, I had the the privilege of joining John and joining much of the Congressional Black Caucus in flying to South Africa for for Nelson Mandela's funeral, and and I, I was the only senator who attended Mandela's funeral. And and the entire flight there, the flight back, we we basically sat around John Lewis and listened to his stories of as a young man, a hero fighting for civil rights, enduring that horrific beating on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And and I have to say, he was a man who believed in justice, who had incredible courage, and and, and he's an inspiration for many generations to come.
1: Thank you for that, Senator. Um, I I do want to ask you about the business at hand, which, as we know uh, from the White House and and from Leader McConnell's office, is this bill they plan to introduce tomorrow uh, to provide another round of aid. Um, You opposed it earlier this week. Are you on board now?
5: I I am not. We have right now two simultaneous national crises. We have a global pandemic. It is serious. It has taken the lives of over 600,000 people. We need to do significantly more to fight the disease. At the same time, we have an absolute economic catastrophe. We have over 44 million Americans have lost their job, and we have got to get America back to work. Unfortunately, I just listened to your interview with Speaker Pelosi her objectives are focused on neither of those. Her objectives are shoveling cash at the problem and shutting America down. And in particular, you look at the $3 trillion bill she's trying to push. It's just shoveling money to her friends and not actually solving the problem. Our objective should be Americans want to get back to work. They want to be able to provide for their right. family. They want to be be, be hopeful for the future and and unfortunately Margaret I I think we're seeing democrats we're seeing democratic governors we're seeing democratic mayors
1: but what specifically who, uh, but what specifically because in terms of the unemployment benefits do you object to providing any kind or any amount of federal boost to unemployment at this point because not everyone is choosing to be out of work
5: The policy that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are pushing adds an additional $600 a week of federal money to unemployment. We have the unemployment system. system Right, and McConnell wants
1: to take it down to 70 percent of
5: prior wages. The problem is, for 68 percent of people receiving it right now, they are being paid more on unemployment— than they made in their job. And I'll tell you, I've spoken to small business owners all over the state of Texas who are trying to reopen and they're calling their, their waiters and waitresses, yeah. they're calling their busboys and they won't come back. And of course they won't come back because the federal government is paying in some instances twice as much money to stay home. But you're as, open
1: as, as, to a lesser as, amount?
5: I, look, I, what we ought to focus on instead of just shoveling trillions out the door, we ought to be passing a recovery bill. Now, what's a recovery bill? A recovery bill would be lifting the taxes and the regulations that are hammering small businesses so that people can go back to work. A recovery bill would suspend right. the payroll tax, which would give a a, a pay raise – To everyone in America who's working, that actually gets people back to work. Well, the the Treasury Secretary
1: said this morning that you could have five, six, seven other bills coming along that include things like a payroll tax. But this time, unemployment in particular is something that he said uh, needs to be extended. And and according to our latest CBS poll, it's very popular, Uh, 74 percent of Republicans approve uh, more stimulus and added benefits, 92 percent of Democrats, 82 percent of independents. So Republicans do are, have the burden of governing right now.
5: Uh, Why yeah, aren't absolutely. you on
1: board with this?
5: Uh, I am on board with restarting the economy. What, what Democrats want to do, we're 100 days out from the presidential le- uh, election. The only objective Democrats have is to defeat Donald Trump. And they've cynically decided the best way to defeat Donald Trump uh, is shut down every business in America, shut down every school in America. You know, Nancy Pelosi talks about working men and women. What she's proposing is keeping working men and women from working. And, you know, ironically, what she does have in her bill, she has a big tax cut for millionaires and billionaires in blue states. I, I just want
1: to quickly delimit- get you on, is- I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to quickly get you on China because I'm running out of time here. I know you care passionately about what happened in Houston with shuttering that consulate. What did you and- learn? And will more consulates be closed?
5: Uh, Well, they may well be closed. That consulate was closed because it had been engaged in espionage. It had been engaged in intellectual property theft. They used it as a base for spying in Houston and throughout the Southwest. And for a long time, I I have made the case that China poses the greatest geopolitical threat to the United States for the next century. In fact, the last time I did this show— was from Hong Kong in yeah. October. I traveled there. I met with the protesters. There were two million protesters in the street. And you'll recall, Margaret, I dressed in all black in solidarity with the protesters that were standing up to yeah. Beijing and Communist China. And what, one of the most, fact, the most significant foreign policy consequence of this pandemic is people are understanding the threat China yeah. poses, and in particular. This virus originated because of communist China's deliberate cover-up. They arrested, they silenced the heroic Chinese whistleblowers that tried to stop this at the outset. And because of that, over 600,000 people are dead because the Chinese communist government lied. And Margaret, you know, last year when I said that, I didn't have a lot of allies in Washington, both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, you didn't have the White
1: House on board with you, then. they are now.
5: They, they are now. People have yeah. woken up on both sides of the aisle to just how right. dangerous communist China is, and their lies are, are, are taking away people's lives.
1: Senator, we have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Space Nation will be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Joining us now is the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar. Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us. Uh, The President said this week the virus will get worse before it gets better. What does that mean? What is the administration projecting?
6: Well, Margaret, uh, as the president said, we're facing a very serious situation with these these outbreaks. Uh, it is serious. Uh, but the good news is, thanks to the president's leadership, we have the tools to deal with it. We have health system capacity. But we does have that mean you're, you're actually equipment. raising
1: the projections? Because very specifically, the White House had said 240,000 Americans could succumb to this in the first well, wave. Does what the president said indicate you are now upping those projections?
6: Well, Margaret, it's not about projections so much as what are we doing about it, which is we need to wear face coverings. We need to practice social distancing, good personal hygiene, and in our hot zones, close our bars, restrict our indoor dining, restrict our home gatherings. We know this works. The modeling shows yeah. those simple steps will lead to outcomes in terms of disease spread that are comparable to shutting down without all of the pain of shutting down. And if we comply as individuals if yep. we wear our masks we can avoid further shutdowns but if we don't that'll be the consequence
1: okay well we're uh, above 140,000 dead a 1, thousand per day succumbing to this so that is why I'm asking you about the projections um, why did the president oppose including more testing money in this latest bill
6: well, we, we got $25 billion of money in the previous acts, uh, $11 billion of it for states. They've pulled down about $40 million of it so far. The president's going to make sure that he works with Congress, that there's adequate funding for testing. I'm going to leave it to the chief of staff and the secretary of the treasury who are negotiating with Congress now, but we'll make sure there's adequate money that meets the needs of this response.
1: Because Senate Democrats released a letter this week, and I've also heard the same from Senate Republicans, that they say you, in particular at HHS, are sitting on some of that money. In fact, Senate Democrats in a letter this week said that the $25 billion that was provided in April for testing and tracing less than half has actually been obligated. Why is the federal government sitting on it?
6: Well, we've got $2 billion of money that's being devoted towards developing the next generation diagnostics. You know, we'd love to get to the point that we have a rapid point-of-care diagnostic uh, that is readily available, easily produced, and low cost. So we're doing that at the NIH. We have $11 billion that we have pumped out to the states that they are not yet using. You know, our public health labs are running at 58 percent of their capacity, even though we have the supplies to support them fully. We've got to get full shift work into the those so we increase the capacities there.
1: And you have no power over the states or labs to do that?
6: Uh, well, we're certainly talking to the governors and telling them they've got to use this money to get up and running and get that happening. We've made available, we're meeting every need they've got for supplies, for for testing. But at the end of the day, our governors have to take that initiative and get their public health labs fully up and running, uh, even as we improve testing through, say, our commercial labs. You know, just this last week, we've approved now pooled testing at the commercial labs that yeah. enables four or five tests to be run in a single a single test. So it expands capacity dramatically. But the most important thing we've got to do right now is each of us act responsibly as individuals, wear our face coverings, practice social distancing, use good personal hygiene. We know this works if we just will do this as individuals. Uh,
1: We we take the health advice uh, definitely very seriously here. I want to ask you, though, about schools. Um, The CDC did release guidelines. HHS weighed in on them I want to know why wasn't there a benchmark on when schools should shut down?
6: Uh, we don't believe that there are uniform thresholds for 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 school reopenings. But we believe the you, presumption should be. But don't you actually
1: be- have thresholds for what you consider a hot spot? Isn't that actually five percent, very specifically laid out? by the administration, why wouldn't that apply to a school in a district with that number?
6: So, Margaret, what you're referring to is positive testing. And at 5%, we call that a yellow community. At 10%, we call it red. That's an epidemiological early warning sign of potential spread of disease. That's not been defined as a threshold for reopening of any kind. The steps that we can use that are data-driven, informed by doctors, they are smart sensible approaches that can get our kids back safely and our staff back safely to school.
1: If positivity is between 5 and 10 percent, should a school stay open?
6: Each community is going to have to make the determination about the circumstances for reopening and what steps they take for reopening. But the presumption should be we get our kids back to school and we figure out how to make that happen.
1: I'm going to have to hit this commercial break and leave that there with you. Thank you very much, Secretary Azar. We'll be
7: right back.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. This morning, the number of deaths in the U.S. due to COVID-19 has officially reached yet another tragic benchmark, 140,000. Dr. Richard Besser is the president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the former acting director for the CDC. He joins us from Princeton, New Jersey. Good morning.
8: Good Morning, Margaret. Good to be here.
1: Well, Doctor, I'm glad you're here. I want to first ask you, because I know you worked in Atlanta. You knew Congressman John Lewis, uh, who, as you know, passed away on Friday. In reading up on him, it stood out to me that he had spent a good deal of time on health disparities in the minority community and worked on that issue. And I wonder if that's something you collaborated with him on.
8: Well, you know, we didn't work directly, um, but I I lived in his district, uh, and his district included the CDC. And in his entire career, focused on civil rights, focused on trying to undo structural racism, uh, it has a direct impact on health. Um, He was active until the the very end of his life, and uh, in in preparing to come here to, to speak with you, Um, I found a quote that he he, uh, has from from May in a a congressional committee. He said, in the wake of this deadly virus, we should admit we've fallen short. Health inequality is once again costing lives on a scale that no one can ignore. In order to save lives and right this wrong, we must listen, learn, and take action. And most importantly, he called on Congress to put ego and ideology aside. And, And that's one of the biggest challenges we're seeing right now with this pandemic.
1: Well, to that point, according to CDC data, Hispanics, Latinos are hospitalized nationwide for COVID-19 at four times the rate of whites. Um, The black community we know is disproportionately impacted. You're a pediatrician by training. Do you expect these patterns that we have seen to be replicated among children when we look at the possibility of them returning to classrooms, at least partially in the fall?
8: Well, if we're not intentional about making sure that doesn't happen, it will happen. Uh, The the death rate for blacks, Latinos, Native Americans far surpasses their proportion of the population. And if you look at how we fund schools in America, most of it's done off property taxes. So wealthy communities are going to be able to make the, the adjustments to their schools that are necessary for them to be safe places for children, for teachers and staff. Uh, that's very expensive. It takes looking at your airflow. It looks making sure that you have enough classrooms so that you don't need as many children in each class and they can socially distance. It means hiring staff who can decontaminate uh, classrooms and dis- disinfect them every night and, and staff to, to screen staff and children uh, every morning. And in low income communities, schools have been underinvested in for for, for generations Uh, Without additional resources, we will see children of color, black and brown children, disproportionately affected as schools start to reopen.
1: You know, you warned in an op-ed this week, it got a lot of attention, along with three other former CDC directors, that health data is being politicized in a way that you said is really unprecedented. You said the terrible effect of undermining the CDC plays out in our population, you called it willful disregard for public health guidelines, leading to a sharp rise in infections and deaths. Are people within the, D- the CDC telling you that they feel their health data is being undermined and politicized?
8: Well, what, what I'm hearing and, and, and what I'm seeing are, are the same thing. And, and that's that CDC is not out front in their typical traditional leadership role driving the response to this. And we're seeing political considerations continually uh, over, over, overtaking those of, of public health. Uh, we have the world's leading public health agency, uh, and they provide direction not just uh, across the, the federal government, but to state and local public health. And without them leading this response, without it being driven by, by science, we're going to have what's happening right now, which is an out-of-control pandemic, continue for months and months and months to come.
1: But respectfully, though, you know, the CDC has admitted having made some mistakes, uh, not just... So, you know, there is a a question here about their competence as an agency due to these early admitted problems with testing kits, um, slow to warn the public about the, the idea that there's asymptomatic transmission and aerosol transmission of this. The mask guidance was very, very late what's going on? Are they falling short or are you saying they're being muzzled?
8: Well, I I, I think there's a little of both going on here. You know, I I ran emergency preparedness and response at CDC for for four years and led the agency during the start of the the swine flu pandemic in 2009. And every response to, to a new public health emergency, you'll try things and some of them won't work. But when you're in a daily conversation with the public, uh, you develop trust. You explain what you know, what you don't know, and what studies you're doing to try and, and, and learn. And so when you try something and it doesn't work, you have the opportunity to explain what you've learned and what you want to do going forward. The the mask issue is, is a great example. Uh, early on, the CDC was not recommending masks in public. They were recommending masks for healthcare providers. But increasing studies and data showed that because so many people can spread this before they have any symptoms, Uh, There was value in the general public wearing masks. But without CDC meeting every day with the media, hearing what the public and the the press were concerned about, there was no way to bring the public along on that journey. So it looked like a flip-flop, and it didn't lead to people making those changes. I found the questions that I got from the press every day led us to do a much better job at CDC.
1: Well, obviously, we're talking our own book here, but we would love to have the CDC director on the program. Um, And we uh, thank you for your time today. We'll be right back.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: It's 100 days until Election Day. This morning, we have a new CBS Battleground tracker that looks at national trends and the presidential race in two Midwestern states, Ohio and Michigan. President Trump won both in 2016. And our results today... Show Ohio is competitive. President Trump is up forty-six to Biden's forty-five, but in Michigan, former Vice President Joe Biden leads. He's up forty-eight to forty-two. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto joins us from his home today in Westchester County, New York. Good morning, Anthony.
3: Good morning, Margaret. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I want you to explain to us, you know, what is driving the vote in these two states.
3: Well, first thing we should say is that we see an increasingly expanding Electoral College map because of what's going on in these two states. They're both pivotal, as you said. The president won them last time. And at least Ohio, he probably needs to win again. But you look at what's happening. Let's start with Michigan. Well, that state was hard hit by the coronavirus outbreak last spring, and there's still some lingering negativity about how the administration handled that response. In fact, most voters in Michigan tell us they think the administration's efforts hurt the state more than helped it. So that's number one. Then, number two, we see big negatives among voters for how they think that president handles himself personally. And that is something that's accruing then to Joe Biden, where we find that more of Joe Biden's voters feel like they're voting more against the president than for Joe Biden. Now, I should add, economics here are something of a wash. It's about even between which candidate's uh, policies would help revive the economy in ohio some good news for the president he's seen as a little bit better on protecting american manufacturing jobs but all of that really adds up to not only are these states pivotal on that electoral college map but also they exemplify the kinds of voters who swung to him last time and he probably needs again margaret
1: You know, you don't get more personal than talking about someone's children. And uh, the president's been talking quite a lot about trying to get kids back in classrooms, back to school this fall. How are voters receiving that?
3: So when we interviewed parents, we found a real wariness about sending their kids back to school in any regular way. They would prefer... At most, a limited reopening, and many would actually prefer not to have the schools reopen at all. There's still that real concern about coronavirus and what it might do to children. But where this cuts to vote, Margaret, is we see parents telling us that they feel like the administration is pressuring schools to reopen. And what that's doing is it's making parents feel, they say, like they're, they're getting the impression the president doesn't care as much about the risk of coronavirus to children. And look, in any election, that empathy part is always part of how people select a candidate. And if there's an empathy gap there between the president and Joe Biden, that then is probably advantaging Joe Biden, at least for the moment, Margaret.
1: The president this week was tweeting about suburban housewives of America. That was the phrase he used. Uh, It seems that's who he is trying to target. I'm not asking what his strategy is, but I'm wondering why he's focused on this demographic and, and who is that demo anyway? What does that mean?
3: So a couple of things and sort of a user's guide going forward to this election. One is you're going to hear the word suburban a lot. It means a wide range of things to a lot of people, often a stand-in for middle class, often a stand-in for areas of the country where there's more competitiveness. We often find nowadays that a lot of these suburbs are moving towards the Democrats. A lot of them did in the midterms in 2018. So that's something that the Republicans would certainly try to win back. Now, as far as the women's vote, is concerned. We see that, too, with large gaps toward Joe Biden. He's doing better among women. In particular, we'll talk a lot about white college degree-holding women. Those groups have been moving towards the Democrats, and that's the kind of trend that the Republicans in the president's campaign probably wants to try to slow down or reverse, Margaret.
1: And probably why he sent that tweet this week. Anthony Salvanto, thank you for breaking it down for us.
2: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Civil rights icon and longtime Congressman John Lewis is being remembered this week in a series of memorials and services. CBS News anchor and national correspondent Michelle Miller is in Selma, Alabama. Michelle, the nation has been in mourning for a week now. What has stood out to you?
7: Really, Margaret, the women, the women who are taking the lead on speaking out about how this man not only paid homage to them and lifted them up, but they're wanting folks to know about it. I mean, the civil rights movement is something you heard about the men in the movement, the Martin Luther Kings, the uh, Whitney Youngs, the big six. They got all the attention, but you didn't hear about the Amelia Boynton Robinsons or the Annie Lee Coopers, women who were beaten for daring to cross this bridge or daring to try and register to vote. And women like, uh, Chris uh, Cheyenne Webb-Kreisberg, who at eight years old walked across this bridge and were counseled because she was so traumatized by what she had seen, the youngest person to walk that bridge. She spoke about him last night at the AME church. She spoke about how he stayed in touch with her uh, to these past 60 years. Or the Terry Sewells, the first black woman to represent the state of Alabama ever. Who went to Capitol Hill. And the minute she got there, she said that Lewis was there to, to greet her, to mentor her, to guide her. In fact, he, he insisted that she become a co-pilgrimage maker every year to cross this bridge with her, and was always there to take a stand with her. Uh, I think of the Women's March of 2017, and the fact that many of those leaders, including Tamika Mallory, who said he was the first in Congress to legitimize that movement. And she showed me a letter that he had written about a week before he died to not just her, but others in the movement saying, I pass the torch onto you. I pass the torch and I know it will burn brightly. And I just wanna mention one woman who walked here wearing a purple T-shirt. It said Y-O-I-E, standing for, she said, your only is enough. Inspired by John Lewis, she said, because, you know, if you can only register five people to vote, then that is enough. Again, his mantra, if you see something wrong, say something, do something. And that is his lasting legacy.
1: I love that passing of the baton, Michelle. Um, With this procession and this process of mourning, uh, what should we expect in, in the coming days?
7: The family does not want people to travel because of the pandemic, of course, but a lot more taking place. This afternoon, Lewis will lie in repose at the Alabama State Capitol in Montgomery, uh, which ironically was the end point for the famous 1965 march. On Monday, there's a procession through the streets of the nation's capital and an invitation-only ceremony as Lewis's casket arrives to the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Later Monday evening, an outdoor viewing with social distancing protocols in effect on the east front steps of the Capitol. That viewing continues on Tuesday. Wednesday, he will be returned to his adopted hometown of Atlanta and ceremonies at the Georgia State Capitol. Finally, Thursday, and the official funeral at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the pastoral home of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And although that will be Ebenezer's New Horizon Sanctuary, it is still something very, that is expected to be very special. The burial that afternoon will take place at Atlanta's Southview Cemetery. He will be laid to rest next to his beloved wife, Lillian, who passed away back in 2012. So a near full week of celebrations in honor of John Lewis. Margaret? A
1: celebration of his life and his message. Michelle Miller, thank you. I know you'll be covering it for all of us. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation... I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and Adrium Health President and CEO Gene Woods. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington.
0: Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go...
9: the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corriente's exc-